my fellow Americans. This is Cory Doctorow back with the Cory Doctorow podcast, and I am a newly sworn in American citizen. I had my citizenship ceremony last week. It was very moving. It was also very hot. It was held in a uh, shade-free courtyard at the federal building in Los Angeles in 35 degrees centigrade weather, which is, I'm not sure how much in Fahrenheit, because I was born in Canada. But I'm now an American citizen and about to celebrate July the 4th. We're planning a big party and we're going to hang photos of American heroes like Sojourner Truth and like Sacco and Fensetti and like the Rosenbergs. And we're going to play American folk songs and I'm going to cook a big meal. We're going to do halloumi skewers, very traditional American food, as you know, some vinegar slaw. I forget what else I'm making. Bunch of nice stuff. Sausage and peppers on the grill bunch of stuff that J. Kenji Lopez-Alt has in his Serious Eats recipes for July the 4th. Oh, I'm going to make elote as well, delicious grilled corn. So that's my plan for the weekend. I hope you have fun plans for the weekend as well. This is my last podcast for a couple of weeks because I'm about to go on holiday with my family. When I get back on July the 24th, I'm doing a remote keynote for A New Hope. That's the 2600 Magazine Conference in New York City. I won't be there, alas, that conflicted with my family vacation. But I will be in Las Vegas for August the 13th, where I'm doing a talk at DEF CON 30. And I'm doing it with a couple of friends, including uh, Christian Dameff, uh, better known as Quadi, who's a pen tester and MD, emergency room MD. And it's called Literal Self-Own, and it's about pen testing and modification of medical implants and medical equipment. I am also, uh, in the next week, finishing up a couple of big projects for EFF. These are regulatory comments that I've been writing for them for a while now. One is a set of comments to the UK Competition and Markets Authority on a proposal to require browser interoperability and alternative browser engines on major mobile platforms. And I'm also working on some comments for the National Highway Board on charger infrastructure for electric vehicles. There's some bipartisan infrastructure bill money coming down. We want to make sure that that charger infrastructure is privacy-respecting and interoperable. I've had a good week here. Our daughter was in Toronto seeing her family. I'm actually recording this just minutes after getting back from picking her up at LAX. And that meant that we had a couple's week. It was really nice. My wife and I just got to do a whole bunch of grown-up stuff that we don't normally get to do. And then I ended it last night by having some friends over. I had uh, David Dyan from the American Prospect and David Siegel from Demand Progress, who's running for Congress in Rhode Island. I had just done a video event with him uh, with Elizabeth Warren to help raise money for him. He's doing really well. David, if you don't know, was Aaron Swartz's co-founder on Demand Progress and is a really good anti-monopoly fighter. And we also had my dear friend Tom Jennings around. Tom was the founder of Fidonet and helped design the PC ROM chip that went into all of the PC clones from everyone from Gateway and Dell to Compaq and so on. He also founded Homocore, a really important queer zine. And just to sort of been around and done everything, he's a lovely fella. And so the three of them came over and we drank bourbon and we ate and I grilled and we had pork tenderloin and veggie sausages and sauerkraut and asparagus. And it was just a really nice night. I made a great dressing for the pork. I was going to make applesauce, but we had some peaches that were starting to go soft. So I made peach applesauce with cider vinegar that we put on the pork. And boy, was that ever yummy. Just delicious. So this week, as you're going to hear, I'm going to read a slightly different kind of column. This is one that I have not published yet, and the reason will become obvious as I go. So rather than set it up too much, because the setup is in there, I'm just going to read it for you now. 
why none of my books are available on Audible and why Amazon owes me $3,218.55. Written by Cory Doctorow. Read by Cory Doctorow. I love audiobooks. When I was a high school-aged page at a public library in the 1980s, I would pass endless hours shelving and repairing books while listening to Books on Tape from the library's collection. By the time iTunes came along, I'd amassed a huge collection of CD and cassette audiobooks, and I painstakingly ripped them to my collection. Then came Audible, and I was in heaven. All the audiobooks, none of the hassle of ripping CDs. There was only one problem— the Digital Rights Management, or DRM. You see, I've spent most of my adult life campaigning against DRM because I think it's an existential danger to all computer users, and because it's a way for tech companies to hijack the relationship between creators and their audiences. In 2011, I gave a speech at Berlin's Chaos Communications Congress called The Coming War on General Purpose Computing. In it, I explained that digital rights management was technologically incoherent, a bizarre fantasy in which untrusted users of computers could be given encrypted files and all the tools needed to decrypt them, but somehow be prevented from using those decrypted files in ways that conflicted with the preferences of the company that supplied the files. As I said then, computers are stubbornly, inescapably general purpose. The only computer we know how to make the Turing-complete von Neumann machine, is the computer that can run all the programs that we know how to write. When someone claims to have built a computer-powered appliance, say a smart speaker or, God help us, a smart toaster, that can only run certain programs, what they mean is they've designed a computer that can run every program, but which will refuse to run programs unless the manufacturer approves them. But this is also technological nonsense. The program that checks to see whether other programs are approved by the manufacturer is also running on the untrusted adversary's computer. With DRM, you are the manufacturer's untrusted adversary. Because that overseer program is running on a computer you own, you can replace it, alter it, or subvert it, allowing you to run programs the manufacturer doesn't like. That would include... For example, a modified DRM program that unscrambles the manufacturer-supplied video, audio, or text file, and then, rather than throwing away the unscrambled copy when you're done with it, saves it, so you can open it with a program that doesn't restrict you from sharing it. As a technical matter, DRM can't work. Once one person figures out how to patch a DRM program so that it saves the file it descrambles, they can share that knowledge, or a program they've written based on that knowledge, with everyone in the world, instantaneously, at the push of a button. Anyone who has that new program can save unscrambled copies of the files they've bought and share those too. DRM vendors hand wave this away, saying things like, this just keeps honest users honest. As Ed Felton once said, keeping honest users honest is like keeping tall users tall. In reality, DRM vendors know that technical countermeasures aren't the bulwark against unauthorized reproduction of their files. They aren't technology companies at all. They're legal companies. In 1998, Bill Clinton signed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, into law. 
This is a complex law and a decidedly mixed bag, but of all the impacts that the DMCA's many clauses have had on the world, none have been so quietly, profoundly terrible as Section 1201, the anti-circumvention clause that protects DRM. Under DMCA 1201, it is a felony to traffic in tools that bypass DRM. Doing so can land you in prison for five years and hit you with a fine of up to $500,000 for a first offense. This clause is so broadly written that merely passing on factual information about bugs in a system with DRM can land you in hot water. Here's where we get to the existential risk to all computer users part. As a technology, DRM has to run as code that is beyond your observation and control. If there's a program running on your computer or phone called DRM, you can delete it or go into your process manager and force quit it. No one wants DRM. No one woke up this morning and said, damn it, I wish there was a way I could do less with the entertainment files I buy online. DRM has to hide itself from you, or the first time it gets in your way, you'll get rid of it. The proliferation of DRM means that all the commercial operating systems now have a way to run programs that the owners of computers can't observe or control. Anything that a technologist does to weaken that sneaky hidden facility risks DMCA 1201 prosecution and half a decade in prison. This means that every device with DRM is designed to run programs that you can't see or kill, and no one is allowed to investigate those devices and warn you if they have defects that would allow malicious software to run in that deliberately obscured part of your computer, stealing your data, and covertly operating your device's sensors and actuators. This isn't just about hacking your camera or microphone. Remember, every computerized appliance is capable of running every program, which means that your car's steering and brakes are at risk from malicious software, as are your medical implants and the smart thermostat in your home. A device that is designed for sneaky code execution and is legally off-limits to independent auditing is bad. A world of those devices, devices we put inside our bodies and put our bodies inside of, is fucking terrifying. DRM is bad news for our technological future, but it's also terrible news for our commercial future. Because DMCA 1201 bans trafficking and circumvention devices under any circumstances, manufacturers who design their products with a thin skin of DRM around them can make using those products in the way that you prefer into a literal crime, what Jay Freeman calls felony contempt of business model. The most obvious example of this is the right to repair fight. Devices, from tractors and cars to insulin pumps, wheelchairs, and ventilators, have been redesigned to use DRM to detect and block independent repair, even when the technician uses the manufacturer's own parts. These devices are booby-trapped so that any tampering requires a new authorization code from the manufacturer, which is only given to the manufacturer's own service technicians. This allows manufacturers to gouge you on repair and parts, or simply declare that your device is beyond repair and sell you a new one. Global monopolistic corporations are drowning the planet in e-waste as a side effect of their desire to block refurbished devices and parts from cutting into their sales of replacements. DRM laws like DMCA 1201 are now all over the world, spread by the U.S. Trade Representative, who made DRM laws a condition of trading with the USA and a feature of the WTO agreement. 
whether you're in South America, Australia, Europe, Canada, or even China, DRM breaking tools are illegal. But remember, DRM is a technological fool's errand. So while there is no above-ground legal market for DRM breaking tools, there is still a thriving underground for them. For example, farmers all over the world replace the software on their John Deere tractors with software of rumored Ukrainian origin that floats around on the internet. This software lets them fix their tractors without having to wait days for a $200 visit from a John Deere technician, but no one knows what's in the software or who made it, or whether it has sneaky backdoors or other malicious code. And yet, manufacturers keep putting DRM in their products. The prospect of making it a felony to displease your corporate shareholders is just too much to resist. Which brings me back to Audible. Back before Amazon owned Audible, I bought thousands of dollars worth of Audible audiobooks, and they work great, but they failed badly. When I switched operating systems and could no longer get an Audible playback program, I was in danger of losing my audiobook investment. In the end, I had to rig up three old computers to play my Audible audiobooks out in real time and recapture them as plain old MP3s. It took weeks. If I'd made the switch a couple of years later, it would have been months. The audiobooks folder on my current system has 281 days worth of audio. Amazon bought Audible during a brief interval in which the company was taking on DRM. They had just launched the Amazon MP3 store as a rival to Apple's iTunes store, which sold music without DRM, so users wouldn't be locked to Apple's platform. This was a problem the music industry had just woken up to. After years of demanding DRM, they realized that nearly all the digital music they'd ever sold was locked to Apple's platform, and that meant Apple got to decide whether and how their catalog was sold. Amazon's MP3 store slogan was DRM, don't restrict me. They even sent me a free t-shirt to promote the launch because they knew my feelings on DRM. When Amazon announced its Audible acquisition, they promised that they would remove DRM from the Audible store, and I rejoiced. Then, after the acquisition, nothing. Not a word about DRM. The Amazon PR people who'd once enthusiastically pitched me on Amazon's DRM-free virtue stopped answering my email. When I got new PR pitches from Amazon, I'd reply by asking about DRM, and I'd never hear from those PR people again. I got invited to give a talk at Amazon, and I said, sure, I'd do it for free. But I wanted to talk to someone about Audible and DRM. The invitation was rescinded. Once on a book tour, I gave a talk at Goodreads, another Amazon division, about my work. And when they asked if I had any questions for them, I raised Audible's DRM, and the senior managers in the audience promised to look into it. I never heard from them again. Today, Audible dominates the audiobook market. In some verticals, their market share is over 90%, and Audible will not let authors or publishers opt out of DRM. If you want to publish an audiobook with Audible, you must let them add their DRM to it. This means that every time one of your readers buys one of your books, they're locking themselves further into Audible. If you sell a million bucks worth of audiobooks on Audible, that's a million bucks your readers have to forfeit to follow you to a rival platform. As a rights holder, I can't authorize my users to strip off Audible's DRM and switch to a competitor. I can't even find out which of my readers bought books from Audible and send them a download code for a free MP3. Even when I invest tens of thousands of dollars of my own money to hire professional narrators to record my audiobooks, 
If I sell them on Audible, they get the final say in how my readers use the product I paid to create. If I provide my readers with a tool to unwrap Audible's DRM from my copyrighted books, I become a copyright infringer. I violate Section 1201 of the DMCA, and I can go to prison for five years and face a $500,000 fine for a first offense. All of this is so glaringly terrible that it prompted me to coin Dr. O's first law. Anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you, but won't give you the key, that lock is not there for your benefit. It's been more than a decade since Amazon bought Audible, and it's clear that their DRM policy isn't going anywhere. Which is why none of my audiobooks are available on Audible. I don't want to contribute to the DRMification of our devices, turning them into a vast, unauditable attack surface that is designed to run programs that we can't see or terminate. I don't want my work to be a lure into a DRM-poisoned platform. I don't want to make myself beholden to Amazon, locking my customers to its platform with every sale. This doesn't mean I don't have audiobooks. I do. Early on, I worked with great audiobook publishers like Random House and Blackstone and Macmillan to produce DRM-free audiobooks which were sold everywhere except Audible. But Audible has the vast majority of the market, and it just didn't make financial sense for these publishers to pay me a decent sum for my audio rights and then pay great narrators and engineers to produce books. So I started retaining my audio rights in my book deals and paying to record my own audiobooks. The first one was Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, recorded by Will Wheaton, with introductions by Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer, which explains Dr. O's first law in detail. Since then, I've produced many more independent audiobooks, including the audio for Homeland, the best-selling sequel to my YA novel Little Brother, also narrated by Will. Walkaway, a fabulous multicast audiobook starring Amber Benson, Will Wheaton, Amanda Palmer, Myron Willis, Gabrielle DeQueer, and others. And Attack Surface, the third Little Brother book, narrated by Amber Benson. Generally, these books recoup and make a little money besides, but not nearly so much as I'd make if I sold through Audible. My agent tells me that if I'd been willing to set aside my ethics and allow Audible to slap DRM on my books, I'd have made enough money to pay off my mortgage and save enough to pay for my kid's entire college education. That's a price I'm willing to pay. In the years since the Amazon acquisition, Audible has become the 800-pound gorilla of audiobooks. They have done all kinds of underhanded things, like buying up the first couple books in a series and releasing them as Audible-only recordings— then refusing to record the rest of the series, orphaning it. They're also notorious among narrators for squeezing their hourly rates lower than anyone else. Audible also refuses to sell into libraries, so all the Audible original titles are blocked from our public library systems. I think audiences get that there's something really wrong with a system where a single company controls an entire literary format. In 2020, I kickstarted the independent audiobook of Attack Surface and broke every record for audiobook crowdfunding, raising $276,000. But Audible continues to dominate. It's the only digital audiobook channel Amazon will allow, so anyone who searches Amazon for a book will only see the Audible audio edition. It's also the exclusive audio partner for Apple's iTunes Apple Books channel, which is the only iOS audiobook store that doesn't have to pay Apple a 30% commission on all its sales, so it's the only audiobook store that lets you actually buy new audiobooks. 
Other audiobook stores require you to buy your books with a web browser, which avoids Apple's sky-high commissions, then switch back to the app to download them. A clunky experience that has ensured that Apple's own audiobook channel, with its mandatory DRM, is the only one iOS customers really use. Not surprisingly, a lot of people assume that if an Audible search for an author or a book comes up empty, that means there's no audiobook edition available. They don't think of searching for the book on Google Books or Libro.fm or Downpour. They never think to check to see whether the author maintains their own storefront, as I do, where you can get all their ebooks and audiobooks without DRM. That's bad enough, but it gets worse. So much worse. Audible has a side hustle called ACX. It's a self-serve platform where writers and narrators can team up to self-produce their own audiobooks, which are locked to Audible's platform and encumbered with Audible's DRM. ACX has some nominal checks to ensure that the audiobooks that land on its platform are duly licensed from their rights holders, but these are trivial to circumvent. Here's how I know that. On multiple occasions, I've discovered that my own books have been turned into unauthorized audiobooks over ACX. Scammers claiming to have the rights to my books commission narrators to record them on the cheap, with the promise of a royalty split when they are alive. Inexperienced narrators, excited at the prospect of recording a major book by a best-selling author, put long, grueling hours into recording them. Then the book goes live, and I discover it and have it taken down. The scammer disappears with the profits from the sales in the interim, and the narrator is screwed. As am I. Because these illegal ACX audiobooks compete with my own self-produced editions, for which I pay narrators, directors, and editors a fair wage for their creative labor, these unauthorized ACX audiobooks show up in searches for my name on Audible and Amazon, where my own vastly superior and authorized DRM-free audiobooks are not allowed. This isn't an isolated incident. It's happened over and over again. It just happened again. Last week, I heard from Sean Hartel, a narrator who got scammed on ACX by someone calling themselves Barbara M. Rushing, who told Hartel that they held the audio rights to my 2017 novel Walkaway. They do not have those rights. I spent about $50,000 recording a stupendous audiobook edition of Walkaway, which you can buy for $24.95. This audiobook has met with widespread critical acclaim, and the print edition has been translated and celebrated around the world. But Hartel didn't know that. On January 11, 2021, he accepted an offer from Barbara M. Rushing to record the book and worked long hours to produce a 16-hour narration. On February 1st, 2021, the book was accepted by Rushing. On July 7th, 2021, ACX listed Walkaway for sale. On November 9th, 2021, ACX took the book down, having figured out that it was infringing. In the meantime, Rushing sold 119 copies and gave away 10 more, diverting people from buying my own DRM-free edition. 129 times 2495 is $3,218.55, and as far as I'm concerned, that's what Amazon owes me. Now, I'm not going to sue them, probably. I don't have the money or time to fight that kind of battle. For one thing, I have eight books, four novels, a YA graphic novel, a short story collection, and two nonfiction books in various stages of production right now. And I'm going to be producing my own audio editions for them, which is going to suck up a lot of time. 
but Amazon does owe me $3,218.55, and I don't expect they'll pay it. Anyone who's paid attention to AudibleGate knows about Amazon's dirty ACX dealing. The company has been credibly accused of more than $100 million in wage theft from ACX authors and narrators, whom it has scammed with a combination of a one-sided refunds policy and out-and-out accounting fraud. I know a lot about AudibleGate because there's a whole chapter about it in Chokepoint Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back, the book on creative labor markets that Rebecca Giblin and I wrote for Beacon Press. Chokepoint Capitalism explains how large media and tech companies have cornered the markets for creative labor and why giving creators more copyright won't unrig this rigged game. The tech and entertainment giants are like bullies at the school gate who get to shake down creators for their lunch money every day. To reach your audience, you have to go through the choke points they have erected, and when you do, any additional copyright powers Congress has granted you is taken away as a condition of entry. Think of how Audible non-consensually takes away your right to use DRM law if you want to list your audiobooks. If you give your bullied kid more lunch money, you won't buy them lunch. You'll just make the bullies at the school gate richer. Giving creators more copyright inevitably results in those copyrights being transferred to Amazon and other monopolists. To get lunch for your kid, or justice for creators, you have to get rid of the choke points. That's what choke point capitalism is really about. Not just how the markets got rigged, but how to fix them, with a list of shovel-ready practical actions for local governments, national legislatures, artist groups, as well as creators, technologists, and audiences. We're going to be rolling out a crowdfunding campaign for the Chopoint Capitalism audiobook in a couple of weeks. The book comes out in mid-September. We've scored an incredible narrator, Stefan Rudnicki, whom you may have heard on the Ender's Game books, or Hubris by Michael Isakoff and David Korn, or any of a thousand other audiobooks. Stefan's won a Stoker, a Bradbury, dozens of Audis and earphones, two Grammys, and two Hugos. It's going to be fucking great. And it won't be available on Audible who owe me $3,218.55. But you know what will be available on Audible? This. This essay, which I am about to record as an audiobook, to be mastered by my brilliant sound engineer, John Taylor Williams, and will thereafter upload to ACX as a self-published free audiobook. Perhaps you are an Audible customer who searched for my books and only found this odd, short audiobook entitled Why None of My Books Are Available on Audible and Why Amazon Owes Me $3,218.55. I send you greetings, fellow audiobook listener. I invite you to buy all my audiobooks at prices lower than Amazon's, free from DRM and unencumbered by comedy of the absurd user agreements that no one in their right mind would ever agree to. They're for sale at craphound.com shop. Among those audiobooks, the $15 edition of Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, where I explain not just Dr. O's first law, but also my second and third laws. My agent was Arthur C. Clarke's agent, and when I told him that I had come up with Dr. O's law, he told me that I needed three laws. As noted, this is superbly read by Will Wheaton, and Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer read their own intros. Of course, you will only find this book if Audible ACX accepts it. I've combed quite carefully through their terms of service, and I don't see anything that would disqualify this from being listed as an ACX book. But then again... They say they ban books produced without permission from the copyright holder, and we've seen how that works out, right? 
From poking around on ACX, it looks like Amazon's main way of checking whether a user has the rights to a book is by looking at Amazon's catalog to see if there's already an audiobook edition. This means that if a writer refuses to sell on Audible because of their DRM policies, Audible will use that boycott as an excuse to let ripoff artists bilk the writer, the narrator, and the listeners. Because if there's no Audible edition, they assume that the audio rights must be up for grabs. Will Audible let me use its platform to give away a book that criticizes Audible? Or will they exercise their overwhelming market power to both abet a $3,218.55 ripoff and suppress a critique of their role in that ripoff? Only time will tell. The End Well, that's it. I think you now understand what I was getting at in my introduction there. I hope you enjoy this. I'll talk to you at the end of July, probably, and we'll record a couple more podcasts before I head out for Burning Man. And then it's going to be a patchy autumn. I'm doing some book touring with Chokepoint Capitalism. I'm going to be on the road. We'll see how much podcasting I get to do. But I will be doing a lot of live appearances, and I can drop those into the feed. So you will probably get something to listen to, even if I'm away. Anyway, thank you for listening to this. Have a great July the 4th weekend. Have a great Canada Day weekend if you're in Canada. And I hope that we all get the chance to see each other in person soon and that this is the beginning of a new and better era in media ownership as we see antitrust candidates like David Siegel heading for the legislature and campaigning explicitly on a fairer marketplace for all of us, workers and the people who buy the things they make. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours because we don't give a darn. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>